0: Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that Liz Truss thinks is even less funny than that pesky lettuce. On this edition, the seven-year itch. It's seven years since the Brexit vote and we're still talking about it. We wonder, are even the people who wanted this starting to regret it? Then, with free by by-elections less than a month away, we haven't quite got election fever but there is a bad case of election sniffles doing the rounds. And in the extra bit for subscribers, how should politicians behave once their careers are over? Do we want wise grandees or would we rather they go off into the sunset, perhaps to paint sunsets or something equally harmless? Now, without further ado, let's meet the panel. Alex Andreou is a political commentator, actor, and, well, he can do just about anything. But he's all ours, so keep your hands off of him. <laughs> Hello, Alex. How are you? <laughs> Hello, Joe. You all right? I'm good, thank it's you, good mate. Good Alex, in our, in our last edition, we tried not to mention Boris Johnson at all. And I'm going to try and get him out of the way at least a little bit now. The Partygate report, vote was pretty embarrassing for our former PM. Mm. But was Sunak not showing up for it actually the more embarrassing moments there?
1: So instead of answering your question, can I ask you to help me recreate um, the exchange between Sumak's <laughs> press secretary and journalist Adam Bienkov. Um I'll be the press secretary, you of be course. the journalist, OK? Right. The prime minister respects the view of the House that was taken and supports the Privileges Committee's work, and I have nothing more to add.
0: So he respects it, but does he agree or disagree with it? As I said, he respects the view of the house. Is he scared of upsetting his colleagues by expressing his view?
1: Not at all. He was very clear that colleagues should freely be able to express their view. But not his. He has already expressed his view.
0: <laughs> it's it's just always <laughs> so fucking embarrassing with Rishi Sunak. It's so hard it's to know where he's It's literally like
1: out of, yes... Minister, isn't it?
0: I just don't understand. Why does he let these things sort of just catch up to him and then he's forced to say something in the end anyway and you just think, just say it in the first place. Just say what you really think, get it out of the way with or it builds up and becomes this crescendo and drama that it feels like we don't necessarily Because need. I think he's checked out. Yeah,
1: Honestly, like the last two or three weeks when I've seen him, He seems to be shrinking as a figure, as a political figure. He just seems to be faxing it in now. He doesn't even care. Um, Effectively, you could explain every single action and engagement in the last month as a sort of application to become CEO of some
0: tech company in a year's (laughs) time. Yeah, he feels to me like someone who has gone for a job interview, got a job that they are completely underqualified for, and then it's eventually gone, shit, yeah. I, I have sunk, I have not swum. Yeah. And that's where he's at there. A uh, friend of the pod, Raph Bear, said of him uh, you know, not turning up there, was to choose appeasement of implacable foes over alignment with millions of voters is gutlessness without guile, the stupidest kind of cowardice.
1: I love Raph, yeah. but I don't think there's even that level of strategy involved. No. I think he, he just finds the commons a hostile place. His parliamentary colleagues um, are basically really mean to him. I don't yeah. think. He, I just don't think he wants to be there at all, unless he has to, which is like once a week on a Wednesday, if that.
0: Yeah, and he's bad at that when he's yeah, there as well. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> he's had a few deputy appearances as well. Quite a lot for such
0: mm. a short spell. Mm. It's because he's always off hanging out with his best friend Joe Biden because the relationship is so special, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Hannah Fern is a columnist at the iPaper. Hannah, how are you?
2: I'm good, thanks. You
0: Hi. shared a birthday with Boris Johnson, so belated happy birthday thank from you. all of us here at Oh thank God, you, what Thank now? you, thank
2: you. It was our birthday on Monday, our shared birthday, but um, thank God we've never seen each other on it. No. He, every year, I'll never forget this fact, not only because he's an odious creature, but also because... Obviously, on 2020, I know very well what I was doing. And June 2020, I was six months pregnant and couldn't see my mother except for a two metres distance, first time since the beginning of lockdown. We didn't share, you know, we didn't share food or anything because we were worried about touching stuff and sharing it. And he had his big party with his cake and his wallpaper designer and all of that in his flat. So I've never forgiven him for that, really. And every year I'm going to tweet about it. Yeah. (laughs) Just so we don't forget.
0: Uh, well, on this birthday of his, it was the, the Partygate report vote happened. Obviously, not the best birthday gift for him. Was it just about the best gift you could have hoped for, though?
2: I want to say yes, but not really, because I was really disappointed by the level of abstentions, to be honest. You know, of course, we weren't expecting his entire party to come out and, uh, and vote against him. No. But I did think that there would be more uh, moral, I don't know, heft in the yeah. core of the conser- parliamentary Conservative mm. Party, that when it came to it, that it's not actually a vote on do you like Boris. It's a vote on the business of parliament, how we run our democracy. And I was expecting a larger number to come and do the right thing by our democratic yeah. process.
1: They're terrified of the local associations.
2: They, they are. Mean. I was so, so, yeah, I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. I, I felt that it was a real... Uh, indictment of the state of the Conservative Party currently.
1: I mean, the the data at the moment is really quite stark because if you look at, like, Johnson's popularity out there in the country, it's hugely negative, more negative than Sunak. If you look at it in terms of 2019 Tory voters, he's slightly more popular than Sunak. If you look at it in terms of party membership, he's, like, 30 Mm. points ahead. Mm. And... I guess that's the thing they're trying to negotiate badly.
0: The strange thing about the public at large, as well as it's minus versus minus, yeah. it's not like he's popular. Oh yeah, yeah, he's just <laughs> like not, more popular. He's just he's... not
1: quite as loathed. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> uh, our guest today is Kyle Taylor, author of the Little Black Book of Social Media and the founder of FairVote UK. He also shares a birthday with Boris Johnson. This so is Kyle,
3: incredible!
1: <laughs> Am <laughs> I literally the only
3: person in the building who wasn't born on that day? I'm wondering why Alex is here. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to do a full June 19th edition.
0: This is like the the boys
1: (laughs) from Brazil. This is where we find out that
0: actually you'll descend from the same DNA. No, Uh, Kyle, you also wrote a book about Boris Johnson, uh, rather you than me, I would say on that, called The Little Black Book of Lying Johnson. Do you feel that there's a
3: sequel coming along? You know, it's so funny that you mentioned that. I was genuinely talking to the publisher earlier this week and we are going to be doing an updated version for the second edition because the first edition just sold out and they were like, okay, we're going to do a reprint, obviously, because there's so much here. Yeah. But um, w- what do you think? Do we need to Do we need to expand it before we publish? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you could write a whole book just on the resignation yeah. letter, but it's so important to keep a record of this. They're in the position of power. They're the ones who control the uh, machinations of the press and the political parties. And they will over time rewrite these stories if we don't write them down how they actually happened. And I think when you take somebody like him in particular, who genuinely doesn't care about anything else than himself. Yeah. Right. It's just about power having it, losing it, getting it again, just to be able to say, Daddy, look, I have power again. Yeah, You know, you have to, you have to stay on top of these people. Um, otherwise, you'll have like we have in the US with Donald Trump, right? Back doing well, doing better than he's ever done before.
0: And, uh, and anything to stop Boris Johnson writing more history books as well, if we can be <laughs> him to it, I would say. Good grief. It's been exactly seven years since the Brexit vote, and, well, we all know how that went. Obviously, we weren't very happy then, and we aren't super happy now about Brexit or otherwise. Producers, you can put some R sounds in there because I'm not getting it from my from my colleagues in the studio. Uh, the grandiose piece of British self-flagellation that was leaving the EU continues to be front and centre in our political and everyday conversations. So, Dad, if you're listening, let's agree to disagree and move on, God. shall we? But will we, not just us as individuals, but the collective we of Britain at large, ever be able to stop talking about this? And what fresh hell does it have in store for us in the coming months? Alex, we switched names from Romaniacs to oh god what now before my time here, actually, if you can remember, before my time here. Pre jarve. Uh, <laughs> did you think
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you think that you still be talking about Brexit so much at this point in twenty twenty three? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We'll be talking about Brexit for the next two decades. It's the single biggest policy mistake that the UK has made in a generation. We didn't change the name because we we're going to stop talking about Brexit. We changed the name because Remain wasn't a thing anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, I look forward to
0: rejoining X in about 10 years. Time. <laughs> <laughs> we get labelled Ramonas. Uh, but do you think it's... It's more the delusions of the people who throw that sort of term around, who are who are moaning more and kind of fuel fuel our whinging. You know, the Telegraph et al. Let's say,
1: <laughs> I think that is to accept the notion that we, as a group and as a rule, whinge a lot. And I don't think we do. I mean, no more than normal or on a, any other no. issue. It's a fucking national sport. Let's let's face it. There's <laughs> yeah, a yeah, fair yeah. amount of I whinging that goes on. Um, But but on the whole, I I mean, I feel like I pointed out the facts then and I point out the facts now and just the facts are pretty fucking horrible. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, I I just came back from an an incredible conference in Birmingham at the NEC called Trade Unlock that was organized by our Naomi um, through Best for Britain. And I hosted several panels and I, I chatted to hundreds of businesses that were there and what was notable was the absence of whinging actually yeah. um they were broadly positive they focused on what are the issues that they face today and what what are the solutions yeah. that they need going forward um i mean it's not whinging to say you have made my life difficult no. and i need you to make it easier again it's not whinging to Demand that the government should have a fucking industrial strategy. No. Well, it's not just, you, it, know, that, you it's know, it's really better. basic stuff. Yeah. Or at basic the very least, well. like, don't get in our way. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, even if they do nothing, yeah. that would be an improvement to what they're doing now, which is actively just throwing roadblocks yeah. in the way of business. Well, it was so... all
0: get Brexit done. And then they got Brexit done and then did nothing. Beyond that point, would you say that is that kind of they're sort of so delusional and not doing things that now the Remainers have really perhaps always been, but are having to take the role of the pragmatists of, you you know, you've, you've lumped us with this, this complete part of shit. Let's be completely honest about it. And but we want we want the we want things to be better. So there we go. We're going to start actually doing it. You know, We are the ones unfortunately kind of getting brexit done because we're doing stuff now I
1: mean that was always going to be the case right because when a group of people basically um, uh, separate themselves from experts and they say we you know um, we propose this incredibly complicated thing but we don't need you know experts like you to do it that that yeah. was never going to go well but um, I I think it's testament to what brexit always was which was, nothing, right? Um, It was, I want this thing without ever defining what the thing was or what
0: it was going to look like. When it comes to the true believers, you know, of Brexit, does the Brexit cabal seem to be falling apart? Well, again, it seems to be shrinking,
1: but it was never together. So the falling apart would imply that they... You know what, in contract law, what we call a meeting of minds, there was yeah. never a meeting of minds.
2: I mean, the fact that Boris walked away from it on day one, yeah, and yeah and or, said well i i I'm not the person to deliver this. There was no consensus there, w- there was who no who consensus was at it. any point, yeah.
1: there was no clear vision. The closest they came to it weirdly is when um Farage produced this plan for brexit which is now like deleted from everywhere on the internet but i've got a copy (laughs) um which talks about a 10 to 20 year plan of slowly and carefully untangling our affairs from the european union going to sort of EEA membership first
0: and then and you know
1: and then as soon as the vote happened it was like Hardest Brexit now!
0: <laughs> well, Polling Guru Jonker is another friend of the pod, uh, suggested that Farage and Johnson maybe could team up and cause the Tories some issues there. Surely that is just too much ego for one party to possibly handle. Okay, so let's assess this mathematically. They have each proved
1: to have been too much ego for one party on their own. Yeah. <laughs> so I think added together, they may form a sort of ego singularity that will (laughs) swallow them. So I say go for it. So typing Google
0: into Google politically, essentially. Uh, Hannah, Sunak had a chance to distance himself from Johnson, as we mentioned earlier, and he didn't really take it. But on Brexit, could he ever distance his party from Brexit whatsoever? Is it just too enthralled, the whole thing?
2: So I think that the party is... Distance a bull, if that's a word. Uh, d- the party needs to move on and probably will, but he's not the person to do that. He's—I know—he's sort of this Silicon Valley tech type, but also he does really believe in Brexit. If you go back to his website, he's actually still got an article on there that he wrote at the time in 2016 about weighing up the options and what he thought was the right thing to do, and really his decision. So he says was motivated by his true belief in the power and potential of the BRIC economy. So, you know, India and and Brazil and so on. And obviously China, which he references in great detail. I mean, the relationship with China is obviously down the can now because of Russia and Ukraine. So all of his reasons for supporting Brexit have uh, disappeared, if he's being honest. In, in that assessment uh, back in 2016. Well, yeah, you're
0: assuming he didn't have two articles written.
2: Uh, I am assuming. I'm going to give him the benefit of that for, just for this conversation. But, I mean, I, I think let's say he really did believe that then. He knows now that, that that economic future is not deliverable at all. The world has changed, Ukraine and so on. Um, but he can't be the person then no. to, to move the Conservatives hmm. on. So, yes, the party could put put some water between itself and this decision but not with him Just
0: on places know. that won't move on from the past let's talk about the telegraph who <laughs> ran the headline boris may be gone but the benefits of brexit remain very much alive
2: this article was brilliant it wasn't very long that's the weirdest no. thing it was like, i mean we could have guessed that but it, it didn't even try to make the, the argument phone. almost it's like we ought to do this piece there's not really very much we can say. Essentially their, their their first sort of point seems to be it's okay because it doesn't involve Boris Johnson now. <laughs> okay, yeah. fine. So let's move beyond that one. They're still crowing on about, you know, deregulation, which the Conservatives could have done without Brexit anyway. Trade deals, well, where are they? Even the strictest Brexiteer Liz Trust has, you know, managed yeah. failed to get any uh, decent trade deals in, in the bag. Controlling immigration. There's a telling line in that piece, which is quite sinister, which says, "Above all," and I quote, "Above all, they should be controlling immigration." Which says everything about the majority motivation for voting for Brexit. So, but I mean, they're not right. People have moved on from that now. So, I mean, the conservative, the the diehards, the the writers of yeah. these editorials, they still believe that Brexit is the thing that will bring down immigration. We know that's nonsense, but here we are. Um, so that's all they've got. They've got nothing left. All of the things they said it was going to deliver, they're still saying it can deliver it. Well, you know, seven years on, not likely. So they're
1: still end. effectively, I mean, for, I haven't read the piece, but from what you're saying, it's an expanded version of control, our money, our laws and our borders. It's are it, just basically. saying the same thing.
2: And they're saying the problem was Boris. Now we've got rid of him. We can deliver it. I mean, brilliant. obviously nonsense. Just brilliant.
0: And The Telegraph don't have him as a columnist anymore either. As well, So that's uh, their distance from Boris there. He's too. writing
2: about diabetes in the mail. Hooray!
0: <laughs> yeah, didn't have that on my bingo <laughs> Uh Kyle, let's go back to before the votes were cast. In 2019, you wrote that the EU referendum was rife with illegal activity and cheating. If there were another referendum called today in regard to Brexit or otherwise, has anything been done to make you think that that sort of thing
3: might be stopped or reduced? somewhat at least i mean in terms of the vote itself absolutely not i mean what we what we've actually had is a softening and a a melding and a politicization of electoral rules to even greater degree than before the referendum so with the elections bill you have the strategy and policy statement of the elect- electoral commission who is supposed to regulate the election now being done by the government right? So the government is deciding what the Electoral Commission should focus on, um, explicitly taking away the power of the Electoral Commission to prosecute people who break electoral law, right? Mm -hmm. Saying, which they hadn't even been doing, but the government was like, but but you definitely can't, you're definitely not going to do that, right? So on those aspects, it's only gotten worse in terms of how the actual thing would be run. But the bigger issue is that We seem to have this collective delusion in the U.K. that's, you know, shared in the U.S. as well, that there is somehow not truth anymore. Right. That we can't tell the difference between somebody telling us something with a little spin on it and somebody just making up a blatant lie. And that that broader degradation of the actual conversation that happens at times of elections Which is, you know, sort of began at the Brexit referendum in the UK. And then, of course, Trump in the US has only gotten worse. And with social media and now with artificial intelligence, you know, you're going to have an even greater likelihood that everything you see may not be true. In fact, it's we're already to the, the point where you can't be sure that anything you're seeing on social media anymore is actually true. And so some people just check out but then others get radicalized around an individual or an idea that is completely false or completely anti-democratic in what its objectives are anyway. So I I think the EU referendum in 2016 was the beginning of the, of the end of, of functioning democracy uh, in our parts of the world. And when we look forward, you know, there's over 70 democratic elections in 2024. Like we've had seven years to know that, things are really not working and yet here we are having done nothing casting your mind back
0: to to that time you mentioned how the rules have changed was it a case that the rules themselves were completely not right or they simply were not enforced in a way that that made sense
3: i think it was rules for elections in an analog age and it was the first digital election in the uk Mm. and so I think what what it was was that we realized for the first time that the rules that we've been using for a very long time just were not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. There's a wholesale renewal that has to happen around how elections happen because of the way that campaigning has changed. Yeah. But on that day, could it have been fair... Like. Maybe if the internet didn't exist and Dominic <laughs> Cummings hadn't just, you know, <laughs> yeah. made stuff up. <laughs> well, that could
0: be such a great rule for just where we are in the world now. Just maybe if the internet didn't exist, didn't everything would be fine. You wouldn't be hearing us right now, but maybe things would be much better.
3: Well, um, and the the last thing to say is that just the really interesting thing that changed was what we learned in the referendum was the power of the long-term non-voter who suddenly decides to turn up. And that was actually what social media did. It was reaching people who hadn't been participating, but all those people were suddenly getting barraged with digital advertising in a way that pulled them back in around something really powerful. (laughs) So it's just... It's a sort of, like, everything changed in 2016 and we have done nothing yet to fix any of it. (laughs) Hannah, where are we at with Brexit
0: as it stands today? So Camille Badenoch said that international trade isn't too tough recently, (laughs) which is, you know, it's just not too tough. Uh, Just how deluded does that feel?
2: I mean, that is a bonkers statement. Um, I know the CBI are having their own internal crises, shall we say? Won't say too much for legal reasons. But they have put out no update on their website about the kind of international environment for trade since December. And they used to do monthly updates. So that tells you something about where yeah. there is. There's so little to say. And then I had a look at the uh, stats about our, um, how many businesses are trading overseas. And we've got only 11% of UK businesses are exporting currently. Mm-hmm. Now, Gosh. To be clear and careful with those stats, they are from 2021, that was in the middle of the pandemic and you can't directly compare um, with other years and some of the other the stats for other years are, are, are gathered in a different way. So I'm not going to do an inf- unfair comparison, but that to me seems very low, yeah. even for the end of the pandemic. So, I mean, yes, it's nonsense coming out of baden Um that's what they want us to believe, that it's all about attitude, that all you need to do is have a positive mental attitude if you're a business leader, and things will be bright and rosy. But the reality is very different. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I can't bear that kind of... language on that,
1: can we add something, actually, because today, Wednesday, there's this little thing going around a lot of the Brexiter accounts that actually Liam Fox even mentioned in PMQs. Um, there's a thing going around that says, oh, our trade, our exports have increased since the Brexit referendum, and it does it by value, Mm. okay? And that's so dishonest because, yeah, sure, if you tank your fucking currency and and have inflation running at 10% for a year, yeah, you're going to do brilliantly by value. Yeah. Yeah. It's like eating twice as much of the healthy option. Exactly, yeah. It's It's like saying, (laughs) oh, look how much more money I spend on milk now. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. exactly. That doesn't mean you
0: drink anymore. (laughs) No. Hannah, is the, the current inflation crisis and the the mortgage situation that we're seeing at the moment, can we blame that? Can that go back to, can we fairly take that back to Brexit, at least in how no. acute it is being felt here in Britain compared to maybe the rest of Europe?
2: Not directly. I mean, so mortgages is a separate thing, like food inflation and so on. All of the EU countries like Italy, Germany, France, the comparable economies are all struggling with inflation, but at lower rates. So red tape and so on has, has really contributed to that. Um, the US, incidentally, which is not going through any of these issues, uh, um, you know, linked to Brexit and so on, and, and, and actually linked to the kind of food crisis in Ukraine, because they've not got the same supply chains, uh, are, are not facing inflation of this rate at all. They're still down at 2.7%. So in that sense that, yes, a little bit, but the mortgage thing is slightly separate. We have a very different lending system to uh, other European countries. A lot of European countries offer very long fixes, like 20-year fixed-term rates, which may actually now become a thing here in the UK. There's discussion about it in, in Westminster at the moment to try and resolve this kind of up and down that we're, we're seeing uh, at the moment. So uh, you can't really peg the mortgages to Brexit much as we might like to. Yeah. But you can say that the government is handling the economy badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a uniquely British and thing And we've got right this now. terrible
0: government because of Brexit. We have. So there we go. There's so there the Brexit are. connection. We've made way. it. Yeah. Alex, to wrap this segment up, looking forward into the future for Brexit, you watched David Lammy give a speech a few days back at that uh, conference you mentioned did, yeah. up in Birmingham. You know, what are they saying and how do you feel about it? So
1: what Labour are saying, and this was a key message in Lammy's speech, is Basically what we've been saying for a couple of years, which is the logic of geography is inescapable when it comes to trade.
0: Like when Dominic Raab said the channel's really important. I mean
1: the notion (laughs) of not making every effort to renormalize relationship with your closest and largest market is just economic illiteracy and folly. So what they're doing is exactly what Ian Dunt suggested. It's giving itself space to do sensible things away from the glare of the headlines. You know, it's taking trade back to being a page six issue of concern to people that do trade rather than everyone and their cousin. Um, The way I've described it in the past is this. The UK is currently unmoored from the EU and is drifting wherever the current takes it on a lot of issues. We see it with tech, AI, green, all that sort of stuff, right? So it is vital that we we re more Britain to the EU. Um, And that can be done by a handful of pretty unsexy things. It can be a veterinary agreement or food standards or data sharing or it can be professional equivalents. It doesn't matter... In many ways, that's just step one, because what matters is that there are enough ropes that tie you to that regulatory Mm. framework that you stop actively drifting further away. Mm. Everything else is step two. And I think Labour get that. And I think that's what they're doing at the moment. They've announced five things on which they basically, they won't use the word, but they're planning to harmonize with Europe. And once you harmonize on five things, everything else becomes inevitable going forward because it makes sense to harmonize on another five and another ten and once you're a rule taker it makes sense to create a forum in which you begin to influence the rules yeah. and start political engagement and all of that so yeah i, I think they i think they're doing the right thing sure for my taste they're being slightly too timid Um, But I also understand why they feel on this, they have to follow public opinion rather than lead it, because it feels to me if Brexit was a a sort of mass protest vote, then its reversal has to come from the same grassroots. Mm. There has to be an overwhelming demand to reverse it before leaders reluctantly agree to do that. It mustn't come top down because then it confirms everything, all the conspiracies that Brexit propagated. Oh, oh, you see, we told you. Yeah, exactly.
2: So if uh, they're not going to say harmonization with Europe for all the correct reasons that you just described, what are they going to call it? Because I think this is a great point, isn't it? Bob. (laughs) What <laughs> does it, matter?
1: it it's does the, matter? That's the point. It's going to be on page six. Yeah, I and guess. we're going to be discussing it here, but it's going to be a niche interest. You know, it's not going to be the front page of the Daily Mail every day. <laughs>
0: It's time for another listener question in Butch Your Emails. This week, Tom Pegg asks, Why are we so awful at selling progressive ideas? context. Labour retreat immediately almost every time a minister or the mail criticises their plans. The right seem to be great at catchy slogans or turning something positive into an insult. These methods seem to work well. They allow for snappy headlines and easy put-downs. Surely we, tofu-eating woke types, need to up our game, but we rarely seem to do it. We don't even seem to be willing to defend the wins we made in the last century. Is it that our ideas are too complex or that tabloid headline writers break to the right. Uh, Hannah, what do you think?
2: Okay, so I think it's that we're trying to communicate any ideas. The thing that the question gets wrong is that the right is not sharing ideas. It's sharing catchphrases. Emotions. And emotions. And the left tries too hard to sell good ideas. Mm. Nobody cares. If you try and communicate only ideas and you don't play to what's fascinating, surprising and human, people are going to stop listening. They've forgotten how to tell stories, Mm. basically. Mm. And the right is very good at telling stories and the left is very good at talking about concepts and ideas. That's what is going wrong.
1: I'm interested in what Hannah says. Um, I I think you're broadly right I'm of a simpler mindset than Hannah. Um, I don't think that there is something systemically wrong with trying to communicate ideas versus simple um, sort of emotions. I think it's the media landscape in this country that Mm. is problematic because there's so many papers that have an active agenda. Mm. So if we want to at least have a fair crack at it, go back to Leveson 2, implement those uh, um, recommendations which haven't been implemented, and most Mm. of all reform ownership Mm. rules for media in this country because it's utterly ridiculous that our media landscape is controlled by a handful of very rich expats. On the whole,
3: uh, Kyle, what do you think to this? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, I agree with both of those. I worked at Hacked Off for years, so very supportive of regulating the press. I, I do think the left struggles with emotion, but I think the biggest change has been the the right's sort of total untethering from the need for truth. It is much easier to sell a message or an issue if you're not concerned about whether what you're saying is true or not. (laughs) Right. And and even if I'm just thinking back, Hannah, just a few minutes ago when you were explaining the complexities around inflation, what role does Brexit play, right? Like you gave a very thoughtful and fact-based response. It's part of it, not the whole thing, but here's how it all works together, right? If we were the right, like they just, they don't care about the nuance. Um, I always think it'd be so easy to win if I just said whatever I wanted to, whatever I thought the voter wanted to hear. A
0: general election still feels too far off as Rishi Sunak drags the Tories along in the the bizarre hope that somehow things might turn around for his party. But we do have some election fever on the horizon, or election sniffles, if you will, as there will be free by-elections next month after a run of Conservatives quit the Commons. Boris Johnson's, Nigel Adams, and David Warburton's vacant seats will all be contested on July 20th. Alex, looking at these elections, what are you expecting to happen? Okay, so
1: um, I've looked at the MRP polling that Best for Britain did um, recently. 10,000 voters regressed to um, a seat-by-seat level, um, both under the old and the new boundaries, and these will be fought under the old boundaries. And um, Selby and Uxbridge both look like clear Labour opportunities. Somerton and Froome, Looks like the Conservatives would take it um, with Labour coming second. But that feels quite counterintuitive in the circumstances Um, because this poll was before all all this stuff happened and everyone resigned and all of that. Maybe the Liberal Democrats would have a slim, slim chance of taking that one provided that Labour played
0: ball. Because it feels like a protest vote, do you think you can really be able to read very much when these results come out? Or am I wrong? Do you you know, I
1: think generally speaking, that's true. But I think on this occasion, the next general election will be a protest general
0: election. So I
1: think actually they're a very reliable weather vane. Mm -hmm.
0: With that, there is going to be potentially another by-election which we can tell stuff from. Is Schrodinger's politician, Nadine Dorries, (laughs) is she actually going to cause another vote soon? Or is she going to just sort of stay where, where she is? Which I don't know where it is, this never realm of politics. Do you, politics.
1: Know, do you ever used to watch 30 Rock? She's Jenna, isn't she? I mean, that's such a Jenna. Yeah, she's Jenna. Like, just, <laughs> just resign in a blaze of um, accusations yeah. and then turn out the next day and pretend she never did. Yeah. Um, Yes, of course, she, I mean, she'll have to go. The, the, it would be ridiculous if if she didn't. But she's timing it to cause soon maximum mm. pain. That's what she's doing. But can I just say how weird it is that she hasn't had the whip withdrawn, mm. having done yeah. all this yeah. and basically just shot a bazooka into <laughs> number 10, yeah. and then she doesn't resign, and still she retains the whip. She remains part of the Conservative Party. Sunak, again, just not
3: interested.
2: Yeah, he just doesn't care about her. And
3: that's the bigger thing this stuff is showing us, right? He has no control over the party at all. Yeah, you
0: can just throw a complete tantrum and that's it. Get what you want. Yeah, she is a very, <laughs> she's a very talented parliamentarian, though. So <laughs> you, wouldn't, you certainly wouldn't want to lose that sort of skill set that <laughs> Nadine Dorries brings you. You'll would you? No, and,
3: and why you, would of course, want it to be in the House of Lords as soon as possible. <laughs> oh, completely. Where <laughs> yeah. the
0: experts are to really yes. analyze all of this. Yes. Uh, Carl, when you see elections coming up, what do you worry
3: about the most? To be honest, as I was saying before, there's 74 in 2024. So much of our work right now is doing exactly this, like identifying the threats. And I think without question, we're going to see things on social media worse than they were in previous elections. And I think we're going to see what the role of AI really does to uh, our our elections. And uh, on the first, it's simply because with these social media companies, they've actually gotten rid of staff rather than staffed up ahead of this year for democracy in election integrity and civic responsibility they just sort of have gone "Eh, well what's the point of even trying no that's that's free speech that's why that's what it is yeah and and then when you layer an ai i mean just the two like two very quick examples of of ai so one you know we know the idea of a russian bot farm running bots and trolls and to, to uh, manipulate algorithms, right? To make stuff tr- uh, trend or, or yeah. seem real. AI operates at a, a factor of 10,000 in the space. So you think like a, an office suite on the outskirts of Moscow is bad. What about that office suite times 10,000 simply yeah. because of the power of AI? And the second with AI is its ability to produce literally anything, yeah. So I'm just waiting for the video of, you know, in the US election, you know, Joe Biden like beating a puppy with a shovel, right? That is just a complete deep fake goes viral through the Midwest that leads to like offline violence and, and riots.
0: It would show he was energetic. <laughs> it
3: would, it would counter,
0: counter one argument that he really does need to counter that.
3: <laughs> I think whenever you need to like reinvigorate Joe Biden, I think all you have to do is just send him to Ireland for three days. And then he seems to come yeah. back like just buzzing yeah. for like he a seems week. Totally... And then he needs...
1: He should just run his election campaign from Ireland. Should we? Just, I think, think you probably there. do quite well,
3: honestly. Yeah. You know? Americans love I- Ireland. They all like to pretend they are Irish. So.
0: We mentioned in the, in the first section, you mentioned that it kind of felt like in 2016, it was analog rules for a digital election. Is AI and how things have changed, is it just a steeper shift there, but just in a really condensed... Well, from what time. he's
1: saying now, it's no rules. <laughs> yeah,
0: completely. But you know, yeah. it, 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 it's got just as outdated in that short period. Is this going to be the next set of elections where it's this is completely different? This is completely unfounded territory.
3: Oh, yeah, and and if you think about how quickly governments respond, right? So we learned about the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2018, five years ago. We still don't have an online safety bill, right? We have the the CEOs of these AI companies saying publicly that th- what they're building could br- bring uh, could could make uh, people extinct. And we're all like, well that's bad. Let's <laughs> let's have a hearing about it next Tuesday, you know. So uh, there's there is no hope for change because the pace is so slow in governments and and honestly I think some of these governments their own personal benefits rather than the broader risks to the systems. Talking about governments, the, the
0: 2022 elections bill was something you've you've mentioned and that you and your organizations were, were vehemently against. In votes so far since that came into place, how has it impacted things and how do you expect it will impact things in this next run?
3: Yeah, I think the thing that we saw that had the most obvious told you so um, impact was of course, photographic voter ID. Uh, and we know that at least tens of thousands of people were turned away at the local elections. Um, it's near impossible to get an exact count because of the restrictions the government put on how you can count someone if they showed up and didn't have ID. They basically have to make it all the way inside, past several people outside telling them to check. I think that's also the most important piece because it tells us from the government's response really what the goal of the legislation was. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg said... Uh, it didn't work to gerrymander the way we wanted it to. I mean, he said that publicly. It's basically looking to tip the scales to the party in power at the moment yeah. in terms of how an election is run. When Labour,
0: hopefully, I'm I'm really jinxing it constantly <laughs> at the moment. When Labour, hopefully, are in power, what would you like to see them do and bring in? And what would be first on your on your entry for them to say, let's scrap that, get rid of whatever that mess is?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's a really important question. It's also important, I think, for people who work in civil society space and for citizens to make sure that Labour understands that just because they're not the Tories doesn't mean they can do whatever they want. And actually, I think people are going to want some progressive governments and progressive change around institutions, the boring stuff. But the first and foremost would be getting rid of photographic voter ID. I mean, it's, it's a solution looking for a problem, right? We don't have a voter fraud problem in the UK. Um, And the second would be banning foreign money. I mean, absolutely nothing in the elections bill has dealt with the foreign money problem. Um, And then I think probably focusing in on the public order bill and the police crime sentencing in courts bill, you know, we should be able to expect from a left of center labor government that they would restore the right to democratically protest.
0: Hannah, Ipsos released a report in May which suggests that 34% of Brits are likely to vote tactically in the next general election. Does that surprise you and do you think it will come into play in the by-elections?
2: No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Definitely will come into play in the by-elections. Um, as Alex said, you know, Lib- gives Lib Dems an opportunity potentially where they would never have had one yeah. before. Depending on which party you're talking about, there's between each have got between 43% and 45% safe seats. So all of those seats are going to be potential tactical voting hotspots. The majority are going to be tactically voting to keep the Tories out. Now, you would expect that because yeah. that's the government of the day, so that's what a protest vote is essentially. Um but bafflingly, twenty percent want a coalition and a sort of t- potentially so well tactically voting to get a coalition <laughs> in place, which feels weird. You
3: know, I think part of that is because there's such a movement around PR right now. Yeah. And yeah, because perhaps, the Labour Party it, and people people in that space are literally have come to believe that if they can get a Lib Dem Labor coalition, then maybe they'll get PR.
0: Yeah.
2: Does this all but indicate, they're wrong. Uh, they're wrong about that. Labour will never <laughs> They play. are wrong. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Does this all indicate, though, maybe that voters are, are more engaged than we give them credit for?
2: Voters have always been engaged. You know, to be optimistic and positive about, because there's a lot to be slightly concerned about from what we've discussed today, but to be optimistic, I do think that engagement in politics is going to be higher than we've seen for a long time in the next sort of two decades for all of the reasons that we're talking about. And the, the challenge is, is to sustain that engagement in a positive way rather than it um, dropping to kind of, you know, this kind of AI based deep fake campaigny misery, which is where it's, people aren't actually engaging with issues, but they're just engaging with memes. So, yeah, I, let's be positive about it. <laughs>
0: We've reached the end of the show, so what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Uh, Hannah.
2: Housing desk back. Drum roll. <laughs> it's a really, really important report out from a group called the National Housing Federation, which represents housing associations, social landlords, actually primarily housing associations, not councils. And um, and the quote from the chief executive, uh, Kate Henderson, I thought was really powerful, really clever. And in terms of like that whole communicating stories rather than ideas thing, she said, how can it possibly be right that as a country, we have a national strategy for space exploration, but we don't have a national strategy for housing ourselves. And that's just perfect. She's absolutely right. It is a travesty, but to put it in those terms is great. So I think this report's a really exciting step towards things being different uh, around housing after an election.
0: Uh, Alex, what's yours? So, um,
1: in uh, uh, sunlit upland's latest children raised in the u k under austerity, so they just did a big uh, um review uh are getting shorter again. we used to be ranked I think something like sixty ninth we're now a hundred and tenth in that short period, we've fallen behind. Peers and non-peers were like behind Bulgaria now, behind Lithuania. And um, yeah, it turns out uh, Global Britain 2.0 will be more like 0.8. Mm. Um, I mean, there is obviously a serious point there that progress in this as in everything else is not monodirectional. No. You know, we've got things like rickets coming back and stuff like that. You know, this country really yeah. does need an injection of funding into public services. That's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, the assumption that things will be better for the next generation has been completely yeah. blown out of the water. I mean,
1: you stop free morning milk and and lunches and stuff like that. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. It, it just as tick follows talk. Mm-hmm.
0: And Kyle, what's yours?
3: Oh, well, mine's uh, not quite as... Uh, I mean, it it affects home. Um, But um, I was really amazed this week that the story about Facebook potentially launching a new text-based social media app was basically written about maybe two or three times. But Facebook is saying they're going to be launching something similar to Twitter. uh, The working title is Threads because all we need is one more social media network owned by Mark Zuckerberg. And the the sort of release, the stuff that's leaked has said things like, well, we've just really seen a you know, a gap in the market for our people wanting to express themselves through <laughs> text, because that's what we're all about, just connecting and expressing. And of you're course. just like, oh, my God. But the reason I think it's really important is because if only one in six Instagram users signs up for it, it'll be bigger than Twitter. Yeah. Wow. Immediately.
0: Well, that's funny if you say you can't really have to, you don't really have to worry about a gap in a market when you have become a monopoly, do you? So you you create <laughs> your own market. You are in fact, the market. Well, I'll see you on Threads soon, I'm sure.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I am threading it now, actually. <laughs>
0: and that brings us to the end of Oh God, What Now? So, thank you to Hannah. Thank you. Alex. My pleasure. And to Kyle. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time.
2: hello from me and thanks for your support to Charles Lyon, Teresa Clanfield and Roadhouse Photography
1: and a massive hug from me to John Stace, Graham
0: Haywood and Joe Bruce and all the best and thanks for your generosity to Stuart Cowley, Simon Curtis and Robert Lavac Oh God, What Now? was presented by managing editor Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andrei and Hannah Fern. The producers are Chris Jones and Alex Rees, Jess Harpin is the social media producer, group editor Andrew Harrison, and audio production was for me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, what now? It was a podmaster's production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for subscribers. As the saying goes, there is nothing more ex than an ex-politician. But how former office holders handle themselves afterwards wildly varies. If anyone ever elects me, I promise you, once it is all over, I will simply just fuck off. (laughs) I'll play guitar, paint, and go on massive walks from what is hopefully a provincial mansion of some kind. With Boris Johnson not quite ready to go paint some buses just yet, we thought, what better time to ask, how should a politician make their exit, and who has done it well? Alex, what's your favourite type of political exit? Do you want sage advice or them to just go and paint watercolours and never disturb us again?
1: I think it depends on the politician, you know. Uh, I I think I would be okay with never seeing Liz Truss say another word at all, ever. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you're talking about sort of people who have made a
0: contribution to national life— Then I would say... That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning and some fabulous merchandise. Thank you for listening and see you next week.